there's this truism that people say, you know, if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Uh, I don't think that's true at all. I think it's actually the opposite. If you do what you love, you'll work way more than most other people, but you won't mind it as much, right? Welcome to the Veranda Entrepreneur Podcast. I'm Christine Mills. On the Veranda Entrepreneur Podcast, I feature entrepreneurs while I discuss ways you can grow your business today. Step onto the veranda, get a cup of tea, get comfortable, and let's talk shop. Let's do this. Welcome to the Veranda Entrepreneur Podcast. I'm Christine Mills. Today we have Daniel Levine, the owner of Dasher and Crank, a craft ice cream shop located in the heart of Wynwood, Miami, Florida. Welcome to the show, Daniel. Thank you so much for having me on. So excited to have you here. So just to get a quick, you know, rundown of your background and where you're from and your career path. Oh, yeah, totally. Uh, so I'm born and raised here in Miami. Food and cooking and hospitality really have been my lifelong passion. I got my uh, first experience in the kitchen when I was 13 years old um, at Two Chefs Restaurant uh, here in South Miami. Um, and just have been in love with the industry ever since. Um, I've worked in restaurants at every capacity from, you know, washing dishes to doing prep work to running food to, uh, you know, every line position you can imagine to bar back, bartender, server, oh, wow. um, and then all the management levels as well. Um, so it's just been really cool to see the business from all different sides and to, uh, you know, kind of get a 360 experience um, in it. Um, I went to college at uh, WashU in St. Louis, uh, which was a really cool experience, uh, you know, kind of seeing the American heartland, um, got some good restaurant experience there as well, and, you know, really struggled uh, to decide what I wanted to do with my career. You know, on one hand, I was really passionate about hospitality. However, the one consistent piece of advice I was given uh, by everyone I've ever worked with in hospitality to that point was, whatever you do, don't go into hospitality. Um, <laughs> so I was kind of uh, struggling with that, that, you know, like I'm fortunate enough to have, you know, a clear passion and love for something. However, it's a really rough industry to be in, you know, um, the failure rate's incredibly high, um, the margins are incredibly low. Uh, and the hours are just brutal. Uh, you know, your busiest times are, you know, the converse of everyone else's. So you're working weekends and nights and holidays. Uh, so it's just difficult to manage from a, uh, you know, from a life-work balance. But mm -hmm. ultimately I realized that, you know, life is short. You only get one crack at it. Um, you spend the majority of your life working. So if you know what makes you happy, you should go for it. Um, and I'm incredibly happy with my decision to go into hospitality. Um, you know, I, I would just caution people with one thing. You know, there's this um, there's this truism that people say, you know, if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Uh, I don't think that's true at all. I think it's actually the opposite. If you do what you love, you'll work way more than most other people, but you won't mind it as much, the perks that you get, the inside peaks, the relationships right. you get to make, the experiences you get to have. Um, but yeah, that's kind of a little bit um, about how I got into hospitality. 
That is awesome because, one, it sounds like you've always known what you want to do. And, um, two, you know, I grew up in South Florida, um, but you don't meet too many people who are born and raised in South Florida. So what was that like growing up in Miami? So um, I love growing up in Miami. You know, what I think is really interesting about Miami is we're a smaller town than we get credit for. Right. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. we've got all the amenities of a metropolitan city. Uh, however, as you mentioned earlier, there really aren't too many people that are born and raised here. Uh, so by, you know, entrenching yourself in the community, uh, you can, you know, really carve out a space for yourself and, you know, have, you know, small town feels and relationships and whatnot. Uh, so Miami's grown an incredible amount within the past uh, two decades, uh, with the last decade in particular, uh, seeing, you know, a tremendous amount of growth. So it's been really interesting uh, to see that development, especially in the food and beverage space, uh, which I occupy in. Um, but also it's it's less competitive, uh, and since we're growing so much, there's a lot of opportunity. So... You know, a little about my path, um, you know, I went to college in St. Louis, but since I left Miami in 2010, I lived in 10 different cities. You know, I was in St. Louis, and then I was in Melbourne, Australia, then I was in Montreal, and then I was in uh, Long Island, and New Jersey, and uh, Memphis, Tennessee, and Winter Park, which is like Orlando, and I was in Boulder for a little bit. Then I moved to New York City before I finally came back down to Miami. And uh, when I came back to Miami, I was, you know, it was a conscious decision, like, okay, come back to Miami, I'm going to set my roots, and I'm going to engage with the community, and, you know, try to start my own business. And when I first came, I started doing restaurant consulting. Um, And one of the first things that I, one of the first goals that I set for myself with restaurant consulting was to build my professional Rolodex, right? That's one of the best, uh, you know, assets that a consultant has is their uh, professional network. So I created a list of, you know, restaurateurs and chefs um, that I really looked up to that, you know, I, I, I try, or that I wanted to have relationships with. And it's crazy. Within a year, I met everyone on that list. And mm. today, I consider most of those people personal friends. Um, and that's what's really special about Miami is, the, you know, people are much more accessible here. You know, if I tried to do that same thing in New York, you know, I wouldn't be able to sit down with any of the major influencers or uh, movers or shakers uh, in any industry. And the fact that, you know, within a few years, I've been able to, you know, make a name for myself in this industry and, you know, create a business that, you know, has become beloved by the community and accepted and, uh, you know, successful, thank God. And, um, and yeah, like if I were to try to make a name for myself in New York at the age of 24, 25, that would have been a lot harder. Yeah. You know, it's funny you say that. Um, I actually, we have a similar path in that I didn't live in 10 different cities, but I left here, went off to college. I went to uh, Florida A&M University in Tallahassee, and then I went to New York and Connecticut and when I came back in 2017, I had lunch with a friend, and he said that the beauty about South Florida is that the ecosystem down here is so small, is that 
you can meet people so much more quickly than a lot of other cities. Um, so it's funny you said the same thing, and I have noticed that the same that it is it does feel like a small community, but yet there are so many people. For sure. Yeah. But, Daniel, you know, I really love the fact that you stayed in the restaurant, the food and beverage industry, but you've carved out a niche for yourself with Dasher and Crank, a beautiful cultivated ice mm-hmm. cream shop. Um, how did you choose ice cream uh, as opposed to other mm-hmm. uh, parts of the industry? So that's a great question, and I'll try not to go too deep on it because okay. <laughs> I could go on for a very long time. But uh, essentially, there's a few things. So um, there are really three pillars uh, that I tried to um, build my life around, those three guiding philosophies, if you will. Uh, You know, the first was, you know, when I was uh, a junior in college, I had the realization, you got to do what you love. And I kind of touched on that earlier. You know, life is short. You get one go at it. Spend most of your time working. If you're fortunate enough to know what makes you happy, you should go for it. Um, the second idea is, you know, not only should you do what you love, but you should be with the people that you love. So right out of college, I got a great job working for the Hillstone Restaurant Group, the same group that owns Houston's, um, and they've got, you know, 58 restaurants across the country, and they had this really awesome uh, management program where I got cross-trained, and it was an incredible experience. You know, when I was growing up, Houston's, uh, now known as Hillstone and uh, Coral Gables, was one of my favorite restaurants. Um, so it was kind of a dream to be able to work with them right out of college. But I found myself just killing myself, working, you know, 80, sometimes 90-hour mm-hmm. work weeks and holidays and weekends. And, you know, I would be getting off at 4 a.m., 3 a.m. Oh, wow. times. And I, you know, missed some important family um, milestones, right? Not being mm-hmm. there for, you know, Thanksgiving or for a major holiday or for, you know, someone's engagement party. And I was like... You know, you know, it's not all work, right? You know, you get one shot at life, and it's all about, you know, about your family and your relationships. Um, so it was very hard for me to accept, but I needed to prioritize family. Um, so I wanted to be in hospitality in a way that allowed me to be closer with my family. Um, mm-hmm. And then second... Uh, I'll never forget, you know, one of my majors in college was philosophy, and the last lecture I ever attended was by the most brilliant professor I ever had, and his his sermon, essentially, his lecture, the thesis was, you know, like, hey, if you're sitting in this classroom, you know, means you're graduating college from a top university, Uh, if you're, you know, looking at the nation and the world in general, um, the people in this classroom have uh, an unprecedented um, opportunity to um, have impact in the world, right? And he said, you know, like when you're deciding how you want to spend your life, uh, you, you know, can have two goals. You know, you can, you know, aim to do well and, you know, track your success, you know, through, you know, the accumulation of wealth and monetary goals, or you can aim to do good and try to make the world a better place. Um, and he had a few arguments to support his thesis. Uh, you know, the first was, you know, 
what's the meaning of life, right? You know, that's a central question mm-hmm. in all of philosophy. Um, and the best answer we've been able to come up with is we don't know uh, what the meaning of life is, but we're here for a short period of time, and we should try to be happy, and we should try to maximize uh, human happiness and minimize uh, human suffering. And there's this idea in philosophy called um, the paradox of happiness, and essentially what it uh, poses is that the tax towards happiness is indirect, right? If you're uh, trying to obtain happiness through its direct pursuit, um, you know, through, you know, spending money on materialist uh, endeavors or hedonistic endeavors, uh, you know, you'll find short-term happiness, but you'll never find long-term happiness. Um, but okay. the people who do tend to find long-term happiness are people who um, – make other people happy, uh, mm. right? Like happy, you get happiness by making other people happy. Um, so I wanted to find a way to take these three principles, one, my love of food and cooking, um, two, uh, my desire to have a better work-life balance where I could you know, be with my family, um, and then three, how I could make other people happy. Uh, and I thought ice cream was the best way to do it. Um, you know, as I see it, um, ice cream really isn't food in a traditional sense. You know, you don't really eat ice cream because you're hungry. Um, ice cream more is more of an emotion. You know, you eat ice cream mm-hmm. to be happy. It's the mm-hmm. ultimate treat. It's the ultimate reward. Um, you know, it's got a perfect balance of fat and sugar, which releases dopamine in the brain. Um, but, and that, and that, uh, neurological path is even more powerful than children. So, you know, when you're a child, ice cream is like the ultimate reward. It's the ultimate, <laughs> uh, you know, source of happiness. Right. And it's such a powerful uh, mechanism that um, we've become like Pavlovianly conditioned to um, be happy just by even talking about ice cream, right? Like, You've got such a powerful emotional memory bank of positive experiences correlated with ice cream that right. <laughs> even when you're an adult, you're you're drawing from that emotional uh, memory bank and you know creating a sense of nostalgia and it's reminding you of your childhood. And uh, I would say that's also been the most rewarding part of Asher and Crank is you know just seeing you know like how happy we make people. It, it literally warms my heart every single day. I oh, was in the okay. shop uh, last night and, you know, we had a bunch of things going on. You know, with any business, there's always fires to put out and stress and, and whatnot. But I come in and, you know, I'm working feverishly on my computer and troubleshooting. And then I I see these uh, two mothers come in with two daughters and you just see that the daughters are having the time of their life and they're so happy and they got this big grin on their face and the moms are just happy that they're getting to make their kids so happy and like you know it just reminds you why why we do it right like why we work so hard and um and that's another reason why you should you know try to um create a business that um that makes other people happy that services this idea of the paradox of happiness because it reminds you why you're doing it, right? Mm. Like if you could have impact on the world and make the world a better place, it's what it's what keeps you going. Because it's been it's been hard during COVID and everything. You know, you kind of ask why am I still working so hard, and you know, should we you know 
consider, you know, other options, but, you know, it's seeing those, uh, seeing how we make our community a better place that's been keeping us going. Yeah, and I must say, um, I'm going to be taking a trip up to your shop uh, this weekend, but just looking at the Instagram pages of your your product and the location, it's so colorful and lighthearted, and I just become happy by looking at the pictures of your product. So um, you guys are really doing a good job of even furthering that emotion with the color scheme, everything, and the way it's plated. I, I think that you guys have uh, taken, um, you know, your ice cream business to the next level just by the presentation of your product. Um, how did you come up with the name Dasher and Crank? Hmm. So uh, Dasher and Crank are, uh, it's the name of the first patented ice cream machine. You know those hand crank oh, ice cream machines? Um, okay. Yeah. So that's called the Dasher and Crank ice cream machine. And um, I actually got one of those for my bar mitzvah when I was 13 years old. Uh, so I like to say that, you know, our business was started with a Dasher and Crank. Um, and, oh. you know, so the Dash, so it, the reason why it's called the Dasher and Crank ice cream machine is because those are the two major components of the machine. The Dasher is the paddle that turns the ice cream, and the Crank is the motor that turns it. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I was kind of getting back to that history of it, but also I wanted to do the blank and blank uh, style name. Uh, so, for me, I, I, I view us as third wave ice cream. So if you study, um, you know, food trends, uh, it's not, it exists in ice cream, but it also exists in coffee and it exists in beer and, you know, like all of the, you know, industries are kind of going through um, a third wave movement. And that's kind of defined that, you know, like from the, um, from the turn of the uh, 20th century uh, through, let's say, the 19th 60s, um, a lot of uh, common food and beverage items were um, like commodities in which they right. didn't really differentiate themselves by brand or quality. So let's yep. take ice cream, for example. You had places like Breyers, or, uh, which did you know, vanilla, chocolate, strawberry, and if you were crazy, you would get Rocky Road. Um, <laughs> but no one really pushed the envelope as to... Uh, what ice cream could be. And then in the 70s, um, Ben and Jerry's comes along and they really just shake everything up, right? They uh, start, you know, concerning themselves with where do they get their ingredients from? And, you know, they, you know, start raising their own cows in Vermont and really, you know, not putting any hormones in there and trying to be as natural and organic as they could. And then they started questioning what ice cream could be. You know, they put cookie dough in their ice cream. But at the time, it was like, wow, cookie dough in ice cream? Like, that was like, you know, breaking the mold. <laughs> yeah. And they, uh, you know, named, they gave their things crazy names, like Cherry Garcia, naming it after, mm -hmm. you know, like, that was all like, revolutionary, groundbreaking stuff. Um, and in a sense, we're part of this third wave, uh, which is, you know, another step forward from what they did, right? So it's going even further, uh, sourcing the highest quality ingredients and working with local partners, um, right? You know, we like to say there's a story behind all of our, every flavor that we've got. Um, in Miami, we partnered with 
over, geez, probably over four dozen uh, local chefs and food artisans and uh, and farms and everything. Uh, and we really like question what ice cream can be. So we've done wild flavors. Chicken and waffles is a, a fan favorite that we bring out every year. We've done raspberry wasabi. We've done black garlic, fermented garlic ice cream. Mm. We've done barbecue sauce ice cream, um, sour cream and onion. Um, I mean, the, the, the list goes on. I, I, I can go on for days. Have you seen the uh, pop-up ice cream dinners that we've done? I have seen that, and it's like it's not something that's expected of ice cream because the way it's plated, everything is yeah, very so, different. Yeah, so it's wild. We've done three of them now. Uh, they're 12-course ice cream dinner experiences in which each course of a meal is built around one to three different ice cream flavors, and we try oh. to use the menu to tell a story. So, for example, the last one that we did was on the, uh, I think it was on, uh, I guess we didn't do the one in spring, but we had planned it. We were only a few days away from it when COVID hit. Um, but the last one we did was on the last day of fall and the first day of winter, in which we created a menu to kind of tell the story of the changing seasons. And mm. um, we used uh, all seasonal ingredients and worked with local farms and whatnot, but we would do dishes like uh, Thanksgiving, right? And which Thanksgiving we took a uh, a turkey, we deboned it, made a stock out of the bones, um, and reduced that to a demi-glaze, infused that in a Philadelphia-style ice cream with sage, thyme, rosemary, um, and then we made a um, homemade cornbread stuffing. And then wow, we made the, awesome. the turkey ice cream with a stuffing swirl. And then we served that with a roulade of sous vide uh, turkey thighs. Um, and uh, we deep fried it in, in chicken schmaltz uh, with the skin around, so it got super crispy. And we served that with the cranberry sauce foam, and I think that was it. So it was the turkey roulade, cranberry sauce foam, and the uh, turkey and stuffy and stuffing ice cream. I this sounds amazing. <laughs> Daniel, like, this is, yeah. like, um, but we've, revolutionary to the next level. Like, who thinks of this? Like, I know you're collaborating with a lot of chefs and everything, but, I mean, you have taken this to, like, five, Exponential points ahead of the world with ice cream. So, why do you, how are you, what's your thought process of all this? Um, I mean, so that's, that's why it's great to love what you do because, yeah. you know, the reason why we did it, I met a chef who, you know, is a total uh, badass. You know, we love just talking shop and, you know, uh, so the way that it started was he does these um, underground pop up dinners. And I met him and, you know, was saying, like, hey, let me be part of your dinners. Like, I'll make the dessert. Uh, and he would create all these crazy dishes, and I would, you know, kind of have to match his creativity with wild ice cream flavors. Um, and I would also do the whole dessert as well, you know, like have it be part of a larger dessert. Uh, and he would always come to me and say, like, hey, what do you got in time for this? And what do you think for that? 
And then I would always come to him, not with one idea, but like a dozen ideas. And, you know, he kind of joked like, oh, yeah, we should do a dinner with just ice cream. And we kind of thought like, hey, like, we actually, we could do that, um, right? Because ice cream can be savory and ice cream can be sour. And also, like, there's no great way to communicate the versatility of ice cream outside of, you know, just dessert, right? Because So with all of our dinners, we try to explore all of the verticals within ice cream. So, you know, we'll do a frozen custard, we'll do a sorbet, we'll do a granita, we'll do a milkshake, a uh, ice cream sandwich, an ice cream sundae, a popsicle, a slushy. Uh, you know, there's just so many. And then, you know, from the different bases, a Philadelphia-style base, a creme anglaise, a kulfi, which is a Southeast Asian preparation. Um, you know, like there's just so many ways to present ice cream uh, that, you know, the dinner was the best way to, to show it all off. And also, like, you know, we'll have, like, maybe one crazy flavor at a time, um, but there's mm-hmm. only so much that we can get away with at our shop, you know, um, mm-hmm. and we just wanted to do a lot of crazy flavors in a short period of time, and that was kind of the best way to do it. Yeah, you know, that was my next question. Who is your ideal customer? I know that in Wynwood, Wynwood is a very special place for some of our listeners who aren't from South Florida. Maybe you could describe Wynwood, and then you could just, you know, tell us who your ideal customer is who gets this. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Wynwood is Miami's uh, art and entertainment district. Uh, so, it seems like many cities have their equivalent to Wynwood. Uh, there's um, a big uh, art scene over here, or at least historically there was, um, in which a bunch of creatives all came together and, um, you know, made a bunch of uh, mural art and they had their uh, workshops there. In recent years, real estate prices have caused them to move out to Little Haiti. However, the creative spirit that they uh, imbued the neighborhood with uh, still stands. And I'd say there's a great community of developers who, at least for now, are still committed towards uh, preserving the spirit of the neighborhood, uh, trying to not allow, you know, big national chains from coming in and kind of curating their tenant portfolio and making sure that, you know, great local people can do creative and special things. Uh, so when we decided that we wanted to open, when was, was kind of the obvious choice for us. It's home to, you know, great uh, F&B concepts like Zach the Baker and Tampa Coffee and Salty Donut. And they were in many ways um, part of our inspiration. So, um, the way that I, you know, like going to the master strategy behind Dasher and Crank, the idea was we wanted to participate in what I call Miami's local culinary ecosystem. So starting back about 10 years ago, we saw the emergence of two forces um, sep- you know, separately emerging that kind of com- came together within the past five years. Uh, on one side, you had uh, the local board movement, which was really put in place by um, – organizations like Miami Slow Foods, which placed an emphasis on buying and supporting local. And then separately, you had the craft food movement, which was really started by the local breweries, uh, which played placed an emphasis on making things in-house from scratch using local or premium ingredients. And 
those two forces kind of merged together and created a community of food craftsmen uh, that focused on depth rather than breadth, so spe product specialization. So do one product, do it really well, build a premium brand, and if you can, leverage it for wholesale distribution. So I always said we're more similar to Zach the Baker than we are um, Ben & Jerry's. Um, so this kind of community was really strong here in Wynwood, and we wanted to be a part of it. Um, so that's part of the reason why we chose that. But also to your point, uh, you get a special type of person here in Wynwood. Um, you know, it uh, tends to be people who are a bit more creative and a bit more open-minded. Um, you know, there's a great ice cream shop out in, like, West Kendall um, by this guy, uh, uh, Mike Remue, who owns the company is called Sweet Melody, and he's a very talented guy. Um, but his, you know, best-selling flavor is Cookie Monster, you know, a blue ice cream with Oreos in it, and that doesn't speak at all to his ability to make cool, creative flavors. But how that local audience interacts with his stuff. I mean, to be clear, he also does cool, awesome flavors as well. But you know, people in West Kendall tend to be more interested in uh, more traditional flavor profiles. But in Wynwood, our best-selling flavor is Ube Macapuno, a Filipino purple yam with coconut. Hmm. Um, and we have been able to do, you know, like I think two weeks ago, we released a salmon cream cheese ice cream, which sold out like in yeah. days. Um, uh -huh. So I would say who our audience is, well, a few things. One, we've got 18 flavors. We're able to, you know, range the gambit from approachable flavors. You know, we've got vanilla and chocolate and, you know, strawberry cream cheese with guava jelly and things like that. And then we've got our mid-level flavors, you know, the ube, the lemon speculos, um, the smoked almond. Uh, and then we try to always have a few out-there flavors. Uh, and the out-there flavors are for the culinarily adventurous, but also it's just fun. You know, like I always said that, you know, like, you know, ice cream is more of an emotion than it is a food. You know, you eat it to have fun. And um, part of the experience is taking a sample of the wacky flavor, even mm -hmm. if you end up not getting a scoop of it. So, you know, like we did a, um, a sour cream and onion flavor last year in which we – Rather than putting it on a sample spoon, we would give you a ruffled potato chip, and we would kind of have it like a sour cream and onion dip, but rather than the dip, it was ice cream. Um, and we just went through tons and tons of samples of that, but that was part of the fun. Okay, yeah. You know, um, I love the fact that you know who your customer base is, and then you've also chosen Winwood to kind of create that space for you to explore and to experiment and people will pretty much um be drawn to your business because that's who they are. They're you know, that creative spirit. How do you hire your staff to make sure that they embody the happiness of your brand, the creativity mm -hmm. and how do you nurture that spirit in your organization? Uh great question, perhaps uh, the most important one yet. So, you know, I always say, you know, we don't sell food, we sell happiness. And we do it two ways. One is through delicious ice cream, uh, which has fat and sugar releasing dopamine in the brain and reminding you of when you're a child. But equally important is through 
infectious positivity. So mm-hmm. I don't really believe in like woo-woo stuff, but I think there's something to be said about the power of like energy, right? People, yeah. like, you know, whether you say there's a scientific explanation through, you know, you know, mirroring nonverbal cues or whatever, if you exude positivity and happiness, you will elevate people to your level. Um, so, you know, That's true. when I'm hiring, yeah. all, all I'm hiring for is happiness and positivity and, you know, people who, you know, emanate that positivity. Uh, you know, I've got a rule, like, no smile, no job, right? Like, you need to smile, you need to smile during your interview. You need to be happy. <laughs> yeah. You need to feel that. I can teach you everything else you need to know. But, um, you know, like, I've been really fortunate to uh, – to find a great team of people and be able to preserve that uh, company culture um, in which, you know, we've got regulars who know all of our staff by name, uh, you know, who come in and ask, Hey, where's Chris today? And, you know, and things like that. Um, And we'll have customers uh, be waiting in line and just kind of pick up on the energy of the uh, space and, Maybe they've never been there before, and they'll say, "Oh, this is the best ice cream I've ever had." And it's wow! Like, you haven't even you haven't even tasted it yet. Um, <laughs> but it's just the energy that we create in the room, um, and it's been uh, it's so. How how do we create it? Uh, one is through you know just hyper focusing on that as our hiring criteria, uh, and two is. They take it from the top, right? So no matter how hard of a day I'm having, when I'm there, I'm positive and I'm happy. And, you know, sometimes you may have to fake it till you make it, but, um, you know, you can't let any negativity in. When you do find negativity, you got to squash it right away. Uh, So I tell all my staff, like, hey, listen, you know, we all live stressful lives and we all have personal issues uh, and whatnot, but it's really important that, you check all of your uh, your hardships at the door, and when you're here, your problems don't exist. And mm-hmm. we had one we, uh, one employee who she's amazing. Um, she is 20 years old. Uh, I think maybe she just turned 21 um, over the summer, and she had just the hardest go about it. Her mom was struggling, dying of cancer, eventually died. Oh, no. Her brother got into a car accident and oh, she gosh. had to you know, take into physical therapy. And then she got into a car accident and then, oh, man. you know, messed up her back. And then they did a MRI and they found that she had a tumor on her spine. Oh, and gosh. All of this crazy stuff that a 20-year-old should never have to deal with. And, you know, obviously I'm as supportive as I can be. I'm like, hey, if you need time off, if you need this, I'm here to support you, whatever you need. And she's like, no, 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 I want to work. I want to work. I want to work. She's picking up more and more shifts. And she comes in, and she's like this ray of sunshine and like wow. an amazing person. And, you know, one day I ask her, I'm like, how do you do it? You know, like how are you able to stay so positive when you've got all these hard things going on in your life? And she said, well, it's what you said, you know, like, I check my problems out at the door, so it's been really important for me as life's been getting more stressful to spend more time here because I can escape my problems, right? And, and wow. they, 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 you know, they, they crave the positivity and happiness 
of the space that we've created. And, you know, we've had, um, we've had talented people, um, like in the kitchen, for example, uh, who we've had to part ways with because they didn't get it. You know, they, they, they weren't perfectly in line with our culture and they would be a dark cloud uh, in the shop. And, you know, like ultimately that's, that's what we're selling. So that's what we have to uh, optimize for. So I would say company culture is a really hard thing to create, but a really easy thing to destroy. Uh, so you have to be hyper vigilant on um, making sure that everyone is, you know, in line with your company culture. And if there's any, you know, threats to it, you identify it in a timely manner and course correct before uh, it has too strong of an impact. Makes perfect sense. And I love that you said that the person was standing in line and they're like, this is the best ice cream. Because you're right. I mean, you feel that energy yeah. when you walk into a place and people want to be there. Are the employees happy? You know, are they, do they really believe in the company philosophy? So I'm happy that you're able to cultivate that environment. Um, and the last question before we go into rapid fire is just, um, you know, how it has COVID impacted your business? I know that the restaurant industry has gotten a hard hit uh, from the pandemic. You know, how have you been able to manage that and um, thrive even in the middle of the pandemic? Uh, yeah, so that's a great question. Uh, it's been hard, I'm not going to yeah. lie. Uh, so I've been fortunate to first um, really see the community step up and support us in a big way that was surprising. You know, I'm, I think that an ice cream shop plays an important role in its community to be, you know, like a bastion of happiness and like a community center, like a community gathering spot. Mm -hmm. um, so we always try to, so our mission statement is to spread happiness to our community. And mm -hmm. whenever we can, we try to find ways to um, either like volunteer at like the, you know, one of the two homeless shelters that we've got in our neighborhood or the Lotus, uh, you know, uh, shelter for uh, women or we go to the whole children's hospital every six weeks. And, you know, we've always you know, tried to find ways to, give back to our community, really not expecting anything in return. Yeah. Um, but when COVID first hit, we just saw an outpour from the community supporting us, which was like, gave me the goosebumps oh. when I saw it. I had awesome. you know, a regular buy 50 pints of ice cream and went door-to-door uh, -to, -door to her neighbors giving out free ice cream. Oh, um, wow. Like, just like some really amazing thing. Yeah. There was a... Um, an organization, the Orange Bowl Committee. Uh, every year they have like the Orange Bowl Food, Food and Wine Festival raising money for um, for Make-A-Wish Foundation. And, uh, you know, we've participated every year, even before we've opened, and they normally have their um, uh, in September. So out to us uh, a month and a half ago, um, you know, and I thought they were going to be asking us to participate again or giving us an update on it. And they actually said, like, no, like, we had a um, a bunch of benefactors all chip in to give back to the organizations that have helped us in the past. And you know, they, oh. you know, like, actually, you know, helped us, you know, like, some really amazing things, you know, we had people sponsor us. So normally we go to the whole children's hospital. Um, and, you know, we were supposed to go, uh, like, I think the first week of April, 
and obviously we had to cancel due to COVID, uh, but a group of people actually ended up sponsoring us to go and give ice cream at the hospital, um, which was just amazing. So I would say, um, yeah, so Wynwood is a neighborhood that's really reliant on uh, tourism, right? No one really lives in Wynwood, um, and a lot of our uh, business comes from tourism. Uh, so obviously they all uh, died off as a result of COVID. And then in addition to making money from our retail shop, we make money through um, wholesale. We sell to local restaurants. Um, mm-hmm. That all dried up. And we have a, a sizable event business. You know, we do weddings and bar mitzvahs and birthday parties and special events and things like that. And so, yeah, in that way, uh, it was very challenging, so we've had to drastically reduce our costs, and we um, really relied on our local team to, um, you know, to pick up extra slack. And you know, when the, uh, the shelter-in-place order just happened, I went to all of our staff. I think we had like 12 or 13 at the time, and said, like, hey, I would like to invite people to uh, volunteer to. Uh, to quit or to, uh, you know, step down just because some people relied on their income more than others. And I didn't want mm-hmm. to, um, you know, let go of people who relied on the income. So, you know, fortunately, a lot of our employees were like high school students or in college mm-hmm. and they didn't necessarily need the income as the others. So we were able to hold on to staff that really um, relied on the income and they, you know, really stepped up. We relied on them in a big way uh, because, you know, there is, regardless of uh, how much business you're doing, there's, you know, a base amount of work to keep the lights on and to keep the shop clean and everything. Right. Uh, and normally we have a lot of employees and, you know, we're able to split the work up, but by having fewer employees, everyone really needs to step up and they did a great job. Well, that's, I'm, I'm happy to hear that, um, and hopefully, you know, we'll be this this phase will be ending pretty soon in Miami Dade, where you know people could dine in. I know that um, uh, Palm Beach County the it's been lifted a bit. How about Miami Dade? So, I think it was on Monday. So yeah, just a few uh, a few days ago, they uh, allowed 50% indoor dining um, okay. to open back up here in Miami Dade. And, uh, you know, it's been interesting. We've been watching it all week, um, and it's definitely been great for customer experience, right? Like, guests are, I mean, like, that's part of the whole experience is, you know, we've got the bleachers in the shop, and the kids get to run up them and hang mm-hmm. out. And, you know, like, this is something I didn't really appreciate at the time, but, like, a lot of high school kids like to come to Wynwood because, you know, they're told that's a cool place, but... It's all really restaurants and bars that they can't yeah. go to. So, like, we're kind of like a place for them to hang out. And it's always been amazing, you know, like, watching the high school politics play out in our dining room, right? Like, <laughs> high school girls all sitting together as boys, and they go up. And, you know, it's always been fun. And uh, I would say we've got that light back, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got the uh, – another one of my favorite tropes that you see all the time is, uh, you know, like – Mom and dad come in with two or three kids and they just, you know, are done for the day, right? Like they get, like yeah. a lot of times 
parents bring their kids to get ice cream because they just want to break from their kids and they're like, oh, this ice cream will, you know, make them happy and them up. So you just, you see the parents kind of, you know, like sit down and just like turn off and the kids are running rough shop throughout the entire shop. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's great to have that energy back and to see those people. But um, I'm not going to lie, it is a challenge to get everyone to, get on board with our COVID uh, regulations um, and we're wondering what the ethical thing to do is. So, you know, we're just coming up on a week uh, of this trial run tomorrow and it's really frustrating. You know, we've got signs everywhere uh, telling people that they have to wear a mask or they're not allowed in and we've got the stickers on the floor telling people they have to socially distance and whenever someone walks in without a mask, we tell them like, hey, please put your mask on and people just aren't following the rules. And it's like, yeah. how many times can we, you know, we're, we're a positive place, right? I don't want to be kicking people out of my shop. I don't want to be telling them two or three times that they have to do this. And if they don't do this, then, you know, we're going to have to kick them out, right? Um, so it's been really frustrating that people aren't following our rules. And it's like, what you know, one, we want to be conscious of, you know, the public health, right? Like we don't want, we, we want people following these CDC guidelines to, you know, slow the spread. Uh, but also this is a law, right? We can get fined right. if, yeah. uh, you know, if people aren't properly socially distancing. So I don't know, you know, this is all a new problem. We kind of have to figure out uh, if we're going to close down our dining room after this week trial, just because, it's hard it's hard to enforce. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully um people will get used to it. Uh and you're right. It's like you're you're trying to be happy and positive, but at the same time you're going to have to lay down the law at one point and say, "Hey, you got to go." And you don't want to be that person. Yeah, and the problem is the people who are not uh putting their mask on, they feel pretty strongly about not putting their mask on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's like I'm not going to get into a philosophical political debate about right. you know about you know infringing upon people's freedoms right like i've got high yeah. school kids here right and like so it's uh it's a bit challenging and and the thing is like i would say generally speaking it's not a big problem but ice cream really relies on volume right like yeah so it's a low cost item right so you need to do a lot of business to make money on it so you get a lot of people in every day. So even if it's a small fraction of people who are pretty adamant that they don't have to wear a mask, we're still getting them every day. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, yeah, it's a new challenge. It definitely is. Um, so what's next for Dasher and Crank? You know, I know that we have to get through this pandemic, but do you see yourself opening other locations yeah, so um, asking me what's next today is very different than if you were to have asked me back in February. Um, so I would say what's next for Dasher and Crank is to get back to where we were in February, uh, right? Okay. We had gotten our wholesale business to a great place. We you know, were selling ice cream to some of the best restaurants across Miami. Um, now we've only got a few accounts that are back on, but we would love to get our wholesale business back to where it belonged. 
our events business was at new heights. We were, you know, scheduled to be in the in the VIP area and the general mission area for Three Points Music Festival and Ultra Music Festival. And wow. if those went well, the production company that put them on was going to take the, take us on tour with them for some of their summer concerts. Uh, so we were, you know, hoping to be, you know, across the country um, with this uh, uh, music festival production company. Um, we had a pop-up planned in Washington, D.C. at the Watergate Hotel. Wow. Um and that was going to be our second summer with a pop-up, right? Last summer we were in New York, and this summer we were going to be in D.C., and we were even in early talks about doing a pop-up in Montreal, okay. um, which, you know, that would have been pretty cool. And, uh, yeah, so we would have had our events business, we would have had a wholesale business, we would have had a thing. We had uh, LOIs signed for a food hall um, downtown, um, mm-hmm. which, you know, they – they, they were trying, you know, like it was uh, it was the end of February and the beginning of March, and they were really pressuring us to sign the lease. Uh, and I'm like, oh, well, let's see what's going on with this COVID thing. I don't know. And then sure enough, just like, boom. Uh, so I need to check back in with them to see how they're doing, but I peeked my head in the other day and it doesn't look like it made much progress. Um, so I don't know. Uh, but getting into food halls and, uh, and then taking it from there, you know, we need to really so i put a lot of effort into getting dasher and crank to where it was building up an infrastructure and you know building up a business and that kind of all came crumbling down so we need to stabilize rebuild and then grow again yeah and you seem very efficient at what you do um in spite of the fact that you're running a restaurant and you attributed a lot of that to like renting a co-working space and focusing on the administrative side of it. Are you still uh, doing that? Yeah, so I um, I have a desk in a Bureau, which okay. is a co-working space. It's got locations all across uh, the city. And that's been a really big contributor to, I would say, my overall success, not just with Dasher and Crank, but before that I was in restaurant consulting and um and it's really been great because it connects you with professional network. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I, the way that I first got my start was, you know, talking to people by the uh, by the coffee, you know, station, right, and meeting people and then getting introduced to people. And you know, that's kind of speaking back to how Miami is a small network, that once you, you know, get in with some uh, – with some contacts and, you know, like I feel like everyone in Miami is connected within two or three degrees. Yeah. Uh, so I'd say it's been very helpful for that. Also, I can't attest enough to the distracting power of being in your own business, right? Yeah. So I've got a desk in Dasher and Crank, a little office in the back, and if I'm working there, I can't get anything done, right? Like, just because yeah. there's a million things. Oh, they come out, Daniel, pay this. Oh, Daniel, this person is here <laughs> yeah. to see you. Or, you know, what, what do we do here? And it's like, if I wasn't here, you'd figure it out, right? Like, um, right. And, and you just can't help yourself but get distracted by things. Um, so it's been really important for my productivity to um, kind of take a step back from the actual operation and focus on the strategy and the bigger picture 
um, than to get lost in the weeds. I would say that's one thing. I would, I'd say biggest piece of advice I can have to uh, young entrepreneurs is try to get out of the weeds and focus your preliminary entrepreneurial energy towards creating scalable systems and towards uh, you know high impact uh, initiatives, right? Because when you're a young entrepreneur, you've got so much energy, right? You're willing to work seven days a week and 16-hour days and do whatever it takes. And I unfortunately spent a little too much of my time um, not being, you know, just kind of doing everything myself as opposed to creating infrastructure and delegating. So that was the hardest thing for me to do was let go of power, you know, to let people represent me and to do my business for me, right? Like, like when we first started, I was scooping, I was making ice cream, I was doing the books, I was doing this, I was doing that. And you can only do so many things well at once. And if you're going to grow, you need to focus on the big picture, um, so I would say that's something that took me a little too long to figure out, but now I kind of understand, you know, I shouldn't be scooping, right? Like I need to be focused on growing. Well, so, so Daniel, yeah, co-working I, space is really helpful for that. I'm very excited about what the future has for you because I feel like you already know what to do and you have a very strong foundation to rebuild after this pandemic. Um, so now we are going into rapid-fire questions, and it's just a way for um, the audience to get to know you a little bit. Um, so the first question is tea or coffee? Well, actually, it's both. I start my day off with two cups of coffee. Um, I use Perlock coffee uh, from Whole Gables. It's the best. And then I'll switch over to a tea. I'll make myself a um, a pot of Lapsang Sushan tea from JoJo's also here in Coral Gables. Can't recommend it enough. And I'll pour myself some tea, and I'll use the same tea leaves, and I'll just keep on pouring more and more water over it so it gets more and more uh, diluted as the day goes on. And that's my my thing. Nice. Okay. Um, I know this might be hard for you to answer, but what's your favorite ice cream flavor? So, yeah, I... Fortunately, I've developed an answer because I get that all the time. Uh, <laughs> okay. It's kind of a cop-out answer. I don't really have one. We've done over 450 flavors to date. However, uh, the two that just kind of like knocked me sideways that I'm like, what was the best ice cream I've ever had? Um, was One was a – and also it's all personal preference, right? I'm a, right. I'm a custard guy and I'm a caramel guy and, and salt guy, right? So – I did a brown butter, sea salt, um, maple, bourbon, bacon ice cream. That sounds amazing. Um, that sounds really good. Pretty epic. And then we did a collaboration for Pi Day two years ago, three one four, you know, March 14th, with um, Fireman Derek. And I made a caramel custard with, and then put in his crack pie. Uh, which it's like a like a butterscotch like a caramel sea salt pie. Uh, and then I also added like homemade toffee to it, um, which that was just bonkers good. And just a quick note for your listeners: if you want to see, if you want to judge if an ice cream shop is good, try the caramel ice cream. Okay, that's the that's what separates uh, you know the 
you know, artists from the detente, right? Like, if okay. you can hit that caramel, it's like it's the hardest thing to get right, but if you get it right, it's just perfect. Okay. I, I have to check that out because I love caramel, so I, I have to check out your caramel. Yeah. So uh, the next question is, what's your favorite vacation? My favorite vacation? Oof. Okay. Uh, I don't get to go on many vacations anymore that I've got uh, yeah. this business. But uh, first thing that comes to mind has to be New Orleans. Uh, New Orleans is my favorite place in the country. Um, the food and beverage scene there is amazing. You can find a little hole in the wall and they're doing some of the best food you've ever had. You know, the the seafood, you know, like, and I've got it all figured out, right? You know, you got to go to um, Drago's Oyster Bar by the river. you got to sit at the counter and, you know, uh, you, you sweet talk the uh, girl behind the counter and she'll <laughs> throw in a few extra charcoal oysters for you. you got to go to um, Camellia Grill or the Chef Special and, you know, like walk out of there in a wheelchair because uh, <laughs> you ate too much. You know, like it's, it's all traditions, it's all memories, and just the food and drinks are like out of this world. you got to, you know, like start drinking early and, you know, like walk your way throughout uh, the French Quarter, and then, you know, by 4 o'clock, you're, like, dead. And then you go to Aaron Rose, and you have the frozen Irish coffee, and it just brings you back to life. It's a whole thing. <laughs> it sounds like Dasher and Crank might be in New Orleans in the near future. You know, it could be. Uh, I do love New Orleans. I also love Denver a lot, too. Yeah. Uh, so, I don't know. And Montreal. Uh, Montreal's awesome. I love Montreal. Montreal's a great place. I love Montreal. Okay. Um, so, next question is, what do you like the most about Miami? Um, I would say, as I touched on earlier, kind of, uh, I think it's the perfect size. I think you've got the balance of um, metropolitan, you know, uh, amenities right you know there's always something going on there's a new restaurant opening up a new bar there's sports teams there's events there's concerts whatever you want uh you can do it in miami there's always something going on but you can still engage in communities and have impact in your community uh you know like i have identified a few projects that i'm passionate about and have been mm -hmm. able to really contribute towards and I, you know, COVID, you know, with the exception of COVID, where I never really leave the house unless I'm at Dasher and Crank, I run someone I know every day, right? And that's yeah. really important to me. That's nice. And what's your business superpower? My business superpower? Yeah. Um, I would say passion, right? Yeah. I really do love what I do, and I think that's what makes you – put in that extra effort and go that extra mile and create something really special. You know, it's not, you know, I don't develop new flavors because, you know, I feel like sales will grow if I do this new flavor. I do it because it's interesting. I love developing new flavors and, you know, I believe in, you know, celebrating the moments and leaning into experiences. So if it's National Chocolate Day, we're going to do a chocolate takeover, right, in which we're going to do 18 mm -hmm. chocolate flavors. And then wow. that becomes a challenge of, like, how can you tell the story of chocolate in 18 ways, uh, you know? And, and then, you know, I want to, you know, I 
meet someone who is a bean-to-bar chocolate manufacturer in Kyoto, and I go over there, and she gives me a tour of her facility, and I learn new things about chocolate and develop new flavors and collaborate with her, not because I think the collaboration with her is necessarily going to drive marginal revenue, but because I'm genuinely interested in her story and want to mm-hmm. share it with more people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and then, uh, you know, by yeah. focusing on that, the sales follow. Yeah. Yeah. And what surprised you the most about entrepreneurship? How hard it is to do the little things. Mm. So, like, just like everything requires effort, right? Even, you know, like, and also dealing with the government, right? I would say everyone warned me that opening a business would, you know, take longer than you think and be more expensive than you think. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, yeah, people warned me about that. I got it. It's going, you know, like, it's going to take me two extra months and it's going to cost me this much more money than I thought. It's like, no, 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 no. Whatever you think is a conservative estimate, I double it. Um, you know, you would, you know, like dealing with permitting and licensing, you know, it kind of felt like legal extortion. It's like, you got to pay this fee. Now you got to pay this fee. Now you got to pay this. And then, yeah. you know, then like, all right, oh, you think you're ready to open? Nope. Now you got to do the, you know, it's just like you would think that the government would want to encourage small business, uh, but it oftentimes feels like the opposite. Like they want to put as many obstacles in your way as possible. Yeah. Uh, so I would say that was the biggest surprise. Yeah. And the last question is, how can people learn more about Dasher and Crank? Um, good question. I would say Instagram is probably our uh, our best line of communication. Uh, we try to keep it as up-to-date as possible. And uh, we've got a website, dasherandcrank.com, where we keep our new flavors uh, posted on there. And the best way to see what we're up to is come by, you know. Yeah. Uh, come visit us, you know, ask for me, ask for Chris, Leandra. We're always there. We're always, you know, we, we, we take pride in knowing all of our regulars by name and story. Um, so we'd love to get to meet you. And, uh, and, yeah, come by. Well, thanks so much, Daniel, for joining us today. I, I'm really excited to stop by. And I hope everyone that listens will check out your store, and also um, visit you on Instagram. Thank you so much. Great chatting with you. Okay.